one of, the, one of the things about being the pastor is that you get to have lots of different jobs in life. I, I meet very few pastors that didn't have at least 20 jobs before they were a pastor, and I've had a gazillion of them. Uh, they're all, they've all been unique. They've all been different. Some of them been, have been more fun than others. One of the first jobs I had was I worked in the body shop of an RV dealership. <laughs> Little did you know. Don't be bringing your fifth wheels to me to fix them, okay? But... I worked in the body shop, and we did two main things. We had two major things that we did on an ongoing weekly basis. Thing number one was uh, what I like to call the low-clearance repairs. Because we'd sell these things to primarily, you know, older people. And I don't know whether they just never read the yellow signs on those overpasses that said, you know, clearance, nine foot, six inches, okay? But it, it always looked like some big, you know, giant griffin had landed on the top and peeled back you know, everything. So they'd wheel these things in and we'd be like, man, you got that far under the overpass? How fast were you going? You know, you know, grandpa. Um, and so that was one thing that we did. The other thing that we did was uh, what I like to call grandma never drove it refurbishings. So they would bring in these RVs that looked like they had sat in a junkyard, you know, for like, I don't know, a decade. And, and our job was to clean it up and pretty it and make it look like it had just, you know, never gone anywhere, okay? And so those were the two things that we did. The owner of the dealership was actually a Christian, and he went to a Baptist church in town, and there were scripture verses in the showroom, you know, framed scripture verses in the showroom. There were framed scripture verses in the break room. There were framed scripture verses in the office. I mean, it was everywhere. You couldn't escape these scripture verses. In fact, every year at Christmas, he would uh, put on a banquet and he would invite his pastor to come and do a gospel presentation. And, and all the employees, if you went to the dinner, you would get your Christmas bonus. If you didn't go to the dinner, you didn't get your Christmas bonus. Oh, now see, some of you are like, man, that's a good idea. Some of you are like, that totally stinks. Okay, um, well, the guys in the body shop really, really did not care for this man. And the longer I worked there, the more I I picked up on the animosity. I mean, it was huge. And they had three basic gripes. And it was all because the man was a Christian which, you know, floored me because, you know, I was going to a Christian college at the time. And so from time to time, I would get the questions. You're like one of him, right? Um, well, uh, sort of. <laughs> you know, I didn't know how to answer that question. Okay, so gripe number one was they felt like um, he would shortchange customers from time to time. That he, you know, that he, that he didn't always have the employee or the customer best interest at heart. The other gripe that they had was that they felt like uh, everybody who worked there was paid a little bit less than what you would get paid in another place doing the same thing around town. And, And the third beef they had was they felt like that he really didn't care about them as people. You know, we were just here to, to make him richer. And that, you know, that was their per se. Again, it might not have had a basis, but it had some basis in reality. And in a sense, in a sense, he flunked the test. He flunked the test. When I was in graduate school, I had finished my first graduate degree um, up in Wheaton, Illinois, and we moved down here uh, for me to get a second graduate degree at Asbury. And the two places couldn't be more different. Wheaton is metropolitan Chicago, big city. You know, Jenny and I would go in and hear the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I mean, you know, big city stuff. And then we come to Wilmore. And this was before the Beeson money. So, you know, right behind the seminary library was a trailer park. 
I had never seen, I had been in years since I had seen anything like that before, you know, in the western suburbs of Chicago. So it was a big change. It was traumatic. Um, you know, Jenny cried every time we went shopping because it was just so, un, you know, it was like 10 notches below what it should be, you know, because the cigarette butts and the produce at Kroger and just stuff that would drive her nuts, you know. Oh, this is disgusting, okay? So I, I'm in class, and, and with the first professor that I had, who is also my assigned advisor, uh, required us to outline the textbook. That was part of our homework. And, you know, I had already done a graduate degree, and I was like, I, I can't handle this. I, you know, this is like dumb thinking. You know, I'll do anything. I'll take 15 tests. I'll write a 100-page paper. I'll just please, I'll do, I'll read five books. You tell me what you want, anything, please. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm having a hard time adjusting here. I don't, maybe I made a mistake. I shouldn't come to Asbury. You know what he said to me? You should get a new advisor. He flunked the test. <laughs> he flunked the test. You have known some people who have flunked the test. You had a boss and, or a coworker, and they would lie to make a sale, or they would throw other people at the office under the bus and, so that they got in trouble and punished, and yet they would do the, yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. And you're thinking, what are you smoking? Okay, they flunked the test. Some of you, some of you have gone to church with people who flunked the test. They, they fired the pastor, or they were in charge of the golden classroom. And when your group or your ministry needed to use it, the answer was no. You can't move any of the furniture. You can't use it. No, it's only for the golden people. It's a golden classroom. The golden classroom can only be used for the golden people, and you're not one of those golden people. Flunk, fail, okay, in your mind, that's what you were thinking. Some of you grew up with them, and it was just rules and lists and lectures and everything else, and there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of grace, there wasn't a whole lot of love, and you were like, fail, flunked. Some of you have been married to people who have flunked the, the, the love test. They flunked, okay? Uh, we've all had a boss or a parent or a coworker or even a spouse who have flunked the love test. Is that reasonable for us to expect that someone who says, oh, hey, I'm with Jesus, that the primary characteristic of their life is love? I mean, is that really reasonable? Is it legitimate? I say yes. In fact, the Bible says yes, and we're going to wade into that. I want you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, or 1 John chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. The love test is something that John writes about in one of his letters. And John, the Apostle John, wrote five books in, in, the, in the Bible, the Gospel of John, the first, second, and third letters of John, and then Revelation. Personally, I think he got a bum rap with Revelation. I think it should have been the Revelation to John. I mean, that would kind of tie all the John stuff together, but just Revelation, and then that was it. So he got ripped off there. But five books, the three letters that are at the end, first, second, and third John, are letters that he wrote to churches that he helped start in what is now uh, Asia Minor. And in the first letter, in the book of 1 John, that's where we find this love test. And it's 1 John chapter 2, verses mm, trombone, 3 through 11. Okay, 1 John 2, 3 through 11. John Piper writes that this section is, is a way that we can test ourselves. Um, have we been born again? Do we have eternal life? These are questions that John poses in this text. And, you know, with, and it really is tied to, are we loving people? Okay, so John, 1 John 2, verses uh, 3 through 5. And how can we be sure that we belong to him? By obeying his commandments. If someone says, 
I belong to God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and doesn't live in the truth. But those who obey God's word really do love him. That's the way to know whether or not we live in him. So you have this first like conditional clause. If someone says, if someone says, uh, I know him, but, okay, they don't obey his commandments, they're a liar. John's, John's saying not that they've missed the point, not that they've made some kind of theological error. John is actually saying that person is disconnected from God. Uh, he says, and does not live in the truth. That phrase right there, you've got to remember John in another place, he says, God is what? Truth. So if you're not living in the truth, you're not living in God. You're disconnected from God. And then verse 5, he has this uh, interesting thing, but those who obey God's word really do love him, and that's how we know. And so obedience and having God's love in you are connected, right? So that's kind of, that's the first little conditional phrase that's part of this larger test, okay? So if you say X, but it's Y, then it's like a giant X, okay? And then he goes on, and that's verses 6 through 8. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Christ did. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment, for it's an old one you have always had right from the beginning. This commandment to love one another is the same message you heard before, yet it's also new. This commandment is true in Christ, and it's true among you because the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. So then there's the second thing, and in the New Living Translation, it's not the conditional clause that you get in the original language, okay? But it's the same thing. Those who say they live in Christ should what? Live like Christ, okay? So there it is. It's that old expression in old-fashioned church. If you're going to talk the talk, you should walk the walk. There you go, okay? And it's right there in John. Well, how exactly did Jesus live? What was the hallmark of his life? What was the primary fruit? John would say it's love. And he has this little... uh, uh, two-verse two thing about this, the commandment, the old commandment that's a new commandment. No, it's an old commandment, but it's new, really. What's he talking about? He's talking about the commandment in John 13, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, just as I have loved you, so you love one another. It's the old commandment that's new, uh, and that's what he's fleshing out here. Um, now, uh, just to push the pause button for a minute, remember when you're reading the word love in this letter, in 1 John, it's not what we like to talk about when we say, you know, oh, I love that show. I just love him. I love her, which sometimes means I'm totally infatuated by them. I hope they're going to make my life great. I mean, no, no, no. This is agape love. And in, in the context of the Bible, love is not a feeling. It's not. Feelings come and go. Love does not come and go. Love is constant. Love is not a feeling. Uh, Love, as we said in a series that we did earlier, uh, about a year ago, love is a decision. It's a choice. Love is when you have the other person's best interest at heart. That's love. When you love them enough that you want what's best for them, not what you necessarily want or feel like you need. Love is about sacrifice. Um, And ultimately, love is wrapped in service. We have that statement from one of the Gospels where Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And that's an expression of love, okay? And so, again, love isn't a feeling. It's some of those things, okay? So that's what he's talking about here. 
Then there's this interesting part, okay? So you've got this old commandment that's new, which is love one another. And then he's got this darkness light thing going on. He says, anyone who loves other Christians, or wait, yeah, uh, sorry, back up. This commandment is true in Christ and it's true among you because the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. Now, if you were a good you know, rabbi and you had your Old Testament memorized, I'm far from there, okay? Um, if you had your Old Testament memorized, you'd immediately go, oh, Psalm 6, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 60, darkness, light. He's, this is eschatological stuff. This is end of the world stuff. And in fact, um, this is kind of a throwback in a, in a reference to Isaiah 60. And, and this is what it says in Isaiah chapter 60. No longer will you need the sun or the moon to give you light, for the Lord your God will be re- your everlasting light and he'll be your glory. The sun will never set, the moon will not go down, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of mourning will come to an end. Um, this is kind of end things. And what, what's John saying here? Well, that sounds complicated. What's eschatology? Well, it has to do with the end of the world and the end of everything. But John is saying in this little section of, of 1 John chapter 2, hey, light, darkness, the light that's already shining in you is the light of love. Jesus made a beachhead and this thing that's going to culminate when love finally wins the day, when God finally wins the day and carries the day, has already started. And in your community, in your oikos, in your fellowship, the way that you're loving one another, it's already starting to shine. Okay? And then he, and then he goes on. So 1 John 2, uh, verses 9 uh, through 11. If anyone says, and here's the third conditional clause, if anyone says, I'm living in the light but hates a Christian brother or sister that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves other Christians is living in the light and does not cause anyone to stumble. Anyone who hates a Christian brother or sister is living and walking in darkness. Such a person is lost, having been blinded by darkness. Okay? Whoever says, I'm in the light, but hates, is where? Darkness. Darkness in, in, in John's perspective is bad, very bad. Okay? Um, and so you've got these big Johannine contrasts, light, darkness, um, you know, truth, falsehood, um, love, hate, blindness, sight. And the kicker for me is this little part in verse 10, and he says this amazing statement. Anyone who loves other Christians is living in the light and does not cause anyone to stumble. Think about that for a moment and rearrange the words to where it might make sense in your world and in my world. If someone claims to be a Christian and they don't love, they're going to trip people up. They're going to cause a scandal on. The actual Greek word used there is scandal on, scandalos, stumble, trip. So someone who claims to be a Christian and doesn't love, isn't a loving person, that's going to create havoc. It's going to cause people to trip up. Because it's not the way things are. It's not the way things should be. All right? This whole section here is what I would call the love test. All right? And I know it's a little complicated because you've got these John expressions and contrasts and things and conditional clauses. But really, these three little clauses all add up together to a test, a love test. In the 1980s, you know, back when I was in uh, high school and college, uh, we would take tests and you'd have these little green sl- slender sheets and you'd have to fill in. They were scantrons. You could almost call this a love tron, okay? This is a love test. And 
you will be graded on the degree to which you love. Um, so whoever says they know God, they live in him, they're walking in the light, but they're not loving, they flunk, they fail. And as we talked about at the beginning, right, you've known people who have failed, haven't you? There have been people in your life, some of us, have, and they've been meaningful people, and they have flunked the love test. They failed miserably. But let's take a moment and flip it around and flip the orientation around and look in our own lives, and then we'll walk some things out, all right? To do that, I want to ask a couple of questions. Here's the first question that would be right to pose in light of what John has to say in this letter. Would people who know me, would people who know me, and perhaps people who know me best, say that I'm a loving person? And I know occasionally I'll hear people say, well, I'm just not a loving person. And I think what they mean is I'm not a touchy-feely, huggy-kissy person. Okay, you can not be a huggy-feely, touchy-kissy person and still be a loving person. But if what you really mean is, no, I'm not a loving person, then what John would say, it's almost like saying, you know, I'm just not a Jesus person. It's, it's kind of the logic that John would flesh out. So would people who know me best say, I'm a loving person? Here's another question to ask in light of this passage. Where is God giving me opportunities to put someone else first, to embrace what's best for them, to love them and to serve them, without perhaps the possibility or likelihood that they'll pay me back? Where is God giving me those opportunities? Now, I know for some of you this morning, as, as we're talking through this passage and this idea, you're saying, look, hey, Max, if you could sit me down, you would say, Max, you don't understand? I can't do anymore. I can't give anymore. I can't serve anymore. I, I, I feel absolutely empty. I would, I would say you probably do feel that way. In fact, a lot of Americans, my take on Americans is that we're so busy, we're so overworked, we're so overwhelmed that on any given day of the week, we feel like we have absolutely nothing to give our spouses, nothing to give our children, nothing to give the people who matter most, nothing to give anywhere at any time just because we're empty if that's where you're at, I'd like to give you an assignment for the next 30 days. And, and the assignment is simply this. Start praying over the next 30 days and asking God to begin to change your heart and ask him to help you to love the way Jesus loved. It's just a simple prayer, and, and it helps to do it over a 30-day cycle. Because, um, you know, you're not going to pray it necessarily every day, but if you hit 20 out of the 30 days, it shows God, okay, there's, I think they're serious. I think they mean this. Okay? And, and then he starts. What happens is God will take you seriously with that prayer, and he'll do two things. One, he'll give you opportunities to actually love people. That will be the hard part. But then he'll also actually help you in, on the inside through the presence of the Holy Spirit to actually do it, and you'll be surprised at the help that you get. Once you've done it, then it's almost kind of like this circular thing. You'll find that as you're loving, you get back love. It, it's this weird thing. And I understand it's not automatic and it's not easy. I'm not claiming that this is easy. Um, over the last three months, uh, God's put me in a position where I really need to love my wife. And it's been a struggle. And Jenny and I have talked about it a few times. She's been just working, 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 working. And, you know... I was like feeling neglected, 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 abandoned, 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 you know. <gasps> How could you do this? How could you do this now? Oh, oh, my needs, our needs, the house needs, any needs, you know, hello, ding, ding, ding. 
Okay, and the, and the interesting thing, as I've been, I've been reading, rereading through uh, Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ, Thomas will have these statements in here about love and service. And, he, and it's, it's just like he reaches right out of the book with a fist and clobbers me in the face. Because it's simply, you know, 20 years ago I made vows to this woman. I will what? Love, honor, and cherish you no matter what. And I'm in a season where I was given an opportunity to love and serve. Should I expect anything better than that? Than, than what my master, my savior was given? So it's been, have I had a stinky attitude from time to time? Oh, yes. I've had to repent of it. I've had to apologize. Um, but what I'm finding is on the inside, God gives me that help and that ability. So again, I'm not saying it's easy, but in the end, God's love wins out. In the end, God's love is stronger than what's inside of you, than what has corrupted you, than what has held you down. Love's, uh, God's love is bigger and stronger than that, and he can win out and carry the day when it comes to your heart and what's going on in the inside if you give him the chance. Um, if you're here today and you're a teenager, uh, it might be a practical way to love your parents would be to engage a filter on your mouth just from time to time. Where some of the, I know, and parents are like, oh, Max, this is great stuff. Wait a minute, I'm, com- I'm coming around, I'm coming around, okay? But if, if you're a teenager, if you think about it. A way to truly love your parents, to have their best interests at heart, and, and, and would be to just simply, from time to time, engage that filter. And some of the, you know, you stink, this stinks, my whole life stinks, why can't you, why can't this, you know, and it just, you know, disappears for a while. And, it, and it, for you... You know you're so right and they're so wrong, but what a gift to give them, a gift of love in that very real, practical, tangible way. Um, and again, if you're the parent, maybe it's the same thing. And so, you know, we're going to these, you know, there's a game every night this week. My whole life is nothing but basketball or volleyball, you know, you know okay? So, but you could, it's an opportunity to serve your son or daughter. It, and again, a small little gift of love. Um, at the job, you might have a coworker where you really you, you could ask them, "How are you doing, really?" and actually mean it. And then when they, you know, when you ask somebody that, beware because you might get the spew, right? Because all of a sudden they'll go, "Ooh, really? You care?" <laughs> okay, and that, that's kind of how it works. Well, how can I help? You you want to help me? It, again, it's there. It is love being expressed and love carrying the day. Um, and in church, uh, a number of people do this already, but when, you, when, you, when somebody else has a request or a need and you're actually praying for them, as you're praying for them, to pray as if it were your own need. What an amazing way to pray for someone. Or then just to ask, how can, how can you help? Um, so let me give you a couple of, of things to do on a practical level, okay? So we've been talking about churches, oikos, churches and extended family, and uh, I want to suggest two things that you could do, but I need to make this caveat. See where you are right now? I mean, look around. See, this is like a gym, okay? There's one person up here, and then there's a lot of people in chairs in rows there. Can I ask you a question? Is this a really good context for love? You know, when you think of the best moments of love in your life, do you think of a big room with lots of people sitting in rows, silent? Come on, this is an easy question. No, of course not. <laughs> I'm glad you love me. That's nice. It's good to know that I'm loved. Okay, but 
This, okay, so oikos, oikos, extended family, is the stuff that goes on outside of Sunday morning for 99.9% of the churches, at least in the United States of America. This environment here is not the best context to love someone or to be loved back. It's in those groups and classes and ministries and when you're rubbing shoulders with people. Uh, and so I'm going to suggest, I'm going to give you two assignments. And assignment number one is simply this. Be intentional about developing your oikos relationships. Join a group, join a class, you know, be in a ministry, be intentional about pursuing those things because it gives you a context to love and to be loved. And the second thing is, if none of the things that the organized church is doing, you know, work or fit, then initiate. Invite someone over. I remember uh, before I was a pastor, we were in this group, and there was a couple that we met in the group, and she insisted, we're going to start having dinner every week. And I'm an introvert, and I didn't want to do it. I was like, no, 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 no. Nope, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. You don't get a choice. We're going to do this. No. And sure enough, it happened, and it happened every week. And it was chaos because we had little kids at the time. There was just little John Mark and their little kid. And, you know, you know, mess and chaos. And that's totally not my personality. But over a year and a half, we became really tight. And, it, and, and we simply met them in a group in our church. But they dialed up the relationship so that there was a lot of good oikos, a lot of good extended family, a really good context to love and be loved. That's what I want for you and for me. Um, I know you're busy. I know I'm busy. We're all busy, busy, busy going around. But you and I need these oikos connections. You do. And you can't get them in the big room. It's, it's the stuff that happens. When I think back at the last 20 years of my church life, every instance in which I was shown loved, uh, when people came and moved my furniture, they, I was at the hospital and with John Mark in the wee hours. I... Uh, uh, Golly, what are some other things? Uh, when they've asked me, when I've been at points in my life to the point of despair and, and things are not going well, and they actually ask me and say, I'm so worried about you. Where are you? Where are you with God? I need to know. And they mean it. That's love. None of those things happen in the context of a Sunday morning. Not, not a single one of them. Not one. They all happened out in those oikos things. And so... Uh, again, just two things. Be intentional, and, and if that doesn't work, initiate. Why? Because I believe oikos is the best context to love other people and to be loved. It's the way God designed it to work. And that's why John says in this passage that he does, which is addressed to an oikos. I want to pray.